0: All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Impact Real Estate Podcast brought to you by Justin executive search partner. Uh, I just spoke with Jody Rothery. Jody is with McDowell Housing Partners. She's based in Miami. She is uh, an executive VP of development there uh, in the affordable group, McDowell somewhat recently has been building out an the group and i know i know chelsea from her time in california she re- recently moved to florida she's been in the real estate development world for about 30 years she's she's seen the landscape uh change over the last 30 years and she's got a great story to tell so uh i appreciate her time and i appreciate you all listening to this so um here we go all right jody rothery how you doing today
1: I am doing fabulous. Looking forward to talking to you.
0: Thanks for coming on the Impact Real Estate Podcast brought to you by Jackson Lucas. Uh, and you are in Miami, correct? I am. How is Miami today?
1: It is great. It's uh, warm, not quite so sunny. Uh, looking for thunder showers here in about an hour, hour and a half, which are exciting for me. So, but it's great. I
0: love thunderstorms. Yeah, I live in northern. Ca- I grew up in the east coast, and I live in northern California now. That's the one thing I really miss. I don't miss the snow. I don't miss the uh, darkness, but I do miss lightning and thunder. Yes. Because you, when I first spoke to you, you were living in California, correct?
1: Yes, San Diego
0: nice Yep. if you're gonna be in california that's the place to be
1: absolutely the weather actually in miami is better though people think i'm crazy when i say that but i want warmer weather
0: yeah it's warmer it's definitely warming san diego's not it could be warm compared i live in the bay area but it could be warm but you know it's it's chilly if you're near the near the water
1: I moved from Oregon south to the Bay Area back in 96 with the intent of finding warmer weather, and I was really surprised it was not as warm as I was expecting. It was no. certainly an upgrade, but I continued to move south until I hit San Diego in, in search for for better weather.
0: And then you hit as far, far south as you could, and you just ping-ponged across the country.
1: Far south as I could, for sure.
0: Well, you are the Senior VP of Development at mcdowell housing partners
1: executive uh, Actually,
0: oh i'm sorry i'm just looking off your linkedin profile you gotta update that it says senior <laughs> vp what i don't know whoever created it well mm. i've known mcdowell years ago <clears throat> they actually used to office like the next building next to me in san francisco um with jake was there gentling um but they did mainly market rate housing. I think they were buying apartment complexes across the country back when I knew them. Yes. But you don't do that. You are in affordable development, correct? Yes. So what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so McDowell Properties traditionally for the last several decades has um, really had a multifamily strategy of acquisition um, and reposition. And back a few years ago, around 2018, 2019, Um, Pat McDowell and his partner, Ken, decided to, you know, pursue an affordable path. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's when they brought in Christopher Shear, who's the chief operating officer. He's got, you know, decades of experience in affordable housing in the Florida market specifically. And really, that's when they started to pursue new development in the affordable arena.
0: So it's all new development?
1: All new development on the MHP side, Correct. All in Florida, uh, Florida and Texas currently, but we okay, are looking well. to expand into some other markets. Uh, predominantly, probably eighty percent of what we're doing right now though is in Florida.
0: Well, why would somebody who's been successful on the you know, traditional multifamily want to get into affordable?
1: From a McDowell. Um, partner's perspective, I think it was really an opportunistic play. Um, Certainly, there's a lot of money and a lot of focus on affordable housing. Affordable housing is certainly, you know, one of the uh, top topics of discussion in terms of, of issues across the state and really across the nation. And so I think there was some desire from that perspective, a bit of a, you know, philanthropic Um, thrust as well as, again, the resources were there. Also, there were a lot of uh, tech projects, so affordable projects coming toward the end of their compliance period Mm. that they were starting to acquire uh, with the intent of those regulatory agreements burning off, being able to reposition those to more of a, a market rate strategy, but then started thinking, well, you know, maybe we should check into this tax credit thing a little bit more and found there to be really a, a really solid opportunity to uh, not only reposition the assets that they were already starting to acquire that had existing agreements that could be mm-hmm. resyndicated, but also to get into new development as well.
0: Was there investor demand in that too? Like, was it like, I mean, what what is like the return metrics compared to the two, the stability, like the, like, I'm sure it was. Was it like to just hedge against something? You know, um.
1: certainly. I think there's multiple strategies in that. Of course, the return metrics are very different when you're an, an owner of affordable housing versus market rate. I mean, I started my career on the market rate side, so transitioning into the affordable was really eye opening when you take a look at when your strategy you know, typically revolves around, you know, long-term cash flow. And now all of a sudden on these affordable deals, that's really not the top metric. You're not looking at IRRs to drive, you know, your decisions. Um, now, What are you looking at? Well, so McDowell is a long-term holder and investor <laughs> in these assets. And most of them now, unlike maybe five to 10 years ago, where regulatory agreements were going to burn off at year 15, and you could look at repositioning. Now you're being you know, moved toward, you know, longer regulatory periods, upwards of 50 years in most cases. So most of these assets are going to be affordable for the foreseeable future without the ability to reposition them to market. So, you know, the the strategy in every state is a little bit different, you know, in in California, for example, I mean, cash flow is negligible. You have to underwrite your deals to such a thin debt coverage ratio that, you know, really the upside for a developer is, one, you're going to get developer fees on the front end and possibly some deferred developer fees over the balance of your compliance period, possibly some long-term asset management fees, which aren't significant, but, are certainly cash flow. And then you have the stability, right? I mean, the the demand is is certainly there pretty much anywhere in the United States for, Mm -hmm. you know, affordable projects. So they lease up quickly, they stay stabilized, you know, operating expenses are fairly predictable. Um, You know, there's certainly some constraints that you're dealing with, you don't have the ability just to adjust your rents. You know, as costs go up, yeah. like everybody's seeing right now, you know, expenses are going up across the board, but on an affordable deal, your rents are going to be capped, you know, based on your regulatory mm-hmm. agreement. So you do have, you know, a bit of that downside, although we've really not been in that situation over the past, you know, decade or so that we've had to really concern ourselves with that. But now we're getting into that inflationary environment. But rents have been going up even on the LITEC deals year over year. So um, you know, that that that's still been beneficial overall.
0: Gotcha. And so, but then, yeah, I mean, what's the game plan at, 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 at McDowell? You guys are, you're going to hold these. I mean, how, yeah, explain that to me. The I thought it was always like a 15 year tax credit cycle is now what do you mean by a 50 year? Yeah. So
1: really until the last several years, at least in Florida, again, different from state to state uh, you could commit to a 15 year regulatory period. Um, and at the end of that 15 years, again, adjust kind of to a market rate strategy if you weren't going to re-syndicate your tax credits. Now, in order to be competitive for most funding sources, you have to check a box that says I'm going to commit to long-term oh. compliance period. So well, that's
0: it's good now, for affordable housing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Not so good if your strategy was to hold for 15 right. years and then, yeah. and then reposition it. Hmm. Um, and that's really in terms of, I was really surprised when I transitioned from California to Florida, uh, I was surprised that there were still projects that were being able to execute under a 15-year agreement. But that has really quickly changed in the last year or so. As things have become more and more competitive, they had to look for ways to, um, you know, to to kind of level out that com uh, competitive, the compatibility. So, um, you know, uh, requiring that long-term, uh, regulatory agreement is, you know, one yeah. of the primary ways they've done that.
0: Okay. That makes sense. And so were you doing deals strictly in California prior to moving on to Florida
1: in terms of affordable? Yes. It was pretty much fully California.
0: And I know it's, it's like state by state you got to get to know the local municipal or whatever you got to get to know like it's all very local and affordable so that's so what i'm thinking like you how hard was it you know to transition you know you're you're a rainmaker right how hard was it to transition from like being the the person in, in socal to a whole new market
1: you know um it's interesting and i think one of the reasons i I was apt to do it was because my foyer into affordable housing hadn't been that long ago. I had mm. been in market rate development 20 years, market rate and and um, public private ventures with the Department of Defense, uh, dabbled a little bit in, you know, inclusionary housing, just their obligations of market rate developments but not 100% LITEX. So you know, when I made that transition into LITEC, that was really a whole new world. I really thought when I transitioned from market rate to LIHTC that, um, you know, I had been involved in some very complex, you know, real estate undertakings, complex financial structures, I thought. Um, and... Yeah. Then the first time I looked at, you know, underwriting for an affordable deal, I was really just Florida. It's like, wow, this is how you make this work. And my first closing on a Litech deal was mm-hmm. just really mind blowing. So, you know, I was really able to get myself up to speed fairly quickly in a whole new landscape of regulatory compliance and things like that. So the shift into Florida, um, although it has been, um, it has been a little more challenging than I thought it would be. I mean, of course, I knew there would be different regulations, different agencies. Um, At the same time, just development in general has some nuances in Florida that are are sometimes very different than on the West Coast specifically. But, you know, I certainly felt like I've I've, uh, crossed that threshold and, and now have very good grasp on what's going on in, in Florida as well. And now we're starting to expand out into other States as well. So, you know, it's just going to be, you know, a new learning curve with each state that we decide to move into.
0: What, I guess, what, what are some of the, the major differences between California Yeah, and Florida they seem like the opposites end of the end of the spectrum there? Like what are the, what are the biggest differences?
1: They they really are in every context. I will tell you. I mean, from a light tech perspective, it's really interesting because um, just the 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 timing uh, of a deal when you apply for your tax credits, how much um, involvement the state agency has with your deal as it's going through a closing. You know, California is very upfront, regulatory heavy. I mean, you've got huge binders of, you know, regulations and underwriting guidelines that you're meeting on the front end. So once you secure your tax credits and you've received your award letter, you don't hear from the state agency again. You pay your fees and you're really done with them. In Florida, it's really the opposite. One, you're securing your tax credits very early on, many times Mm. when you really don't even have a, a thoroughly, you know, executable deal at that point. So you're securing those tax credits. They're doing some underwriting, but really the majority of your underwriting is happening as you're gearing up for the close of financing. And then the state agency is very much, um, you know, very much a part of that process all the way through. So very different from that perspective.
0: Gotcha. And you transitioned from, you said most of your career was in, in, You know, market rate housing. Um, like, what was the like? How did that transition happen? Why did it happen? And what were the biggest hurdles for you?
1: Yes. Well, my my career started in luxury multifamily with Trammell Crow, which was an incredible place to really cut my teeth on um, in terms of my real estate career. Um, in the early two thousands, I had the opportunity to. I was approached by a company. Um, which was uh, Clark uh, that was pursuing public-private ventures with the Department of Defense, okay. and this was really an uncharted area at the time. Nobody really knew what a public-private venture was, let alone what the process was going to be for, uh, you know, approvals, execution over the long term. And, and Clark was looking for somebody to really come into California that could stand on their own and, uh, you know, pursue projects on their behalf. Um, on behalf of you know the Department of Defense, who was mm. you know working toward privatization of military housing, and honestly, I knew nothing about military housing. I knew nothing <laughs> about you know the Department of Defense, but that really intrigued me. And here was something that um, was a challenge; nobody really knew how to do. And for me, my whole career has been going after those those type of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was very intriguing. So I had that opportunity, and really spent the next ten years executing. Um, these public-private ventures with the Department of the Army, in the case, in, in my case, um, throughout California, um, building homes for active-duty military members uh, and their families. And that was during the time in the early 2000s in the height of the conflict, you know, where we were deploying a lot of troops and they were doing, you know, most of their rotations would come through the Florida National Training Center, which was the primary location where we were placing new housing. And... To me, at that time, it felt like this was a little bit of my service to the country because yeah, yeah. you know when I first came to to Fort Irwin, which is forty miles outside of Barstow, if you don't know where that's at, and if you know what you know <laughs> what's in Barstow, you know there is nothing there. Um, but there were four hundred <laughs> families at that time living out of their vehicles because there was nowhere to live. There was nowhere to live on base. Oh, there was crazy. no hotels. In the city of Barstow. In fact, when I started working down there, it was impossible to find somewhere to stay.
0: Where'd you stay?
1: So, well, I eventually, I eventually bought a house in Barstow. <laughs> I, I consider that my, <laughs> my, uh, you know, my, my hazard time. I ended up buying a house in, in Barstow and commuted into Fort Irwin. But early on, um, you have to get to know somebody at one of the local motels in order to have somewhere to stay. And wow. and so that was just it was an incredible time to be a part of that to to work through all of the issues as it related to the privatization of military housing working hand in hand with the garrison commanders and the commanding generals on their installations um, and again that was a new dynamic you know that the military wasn't used to and and us as a, a private company coming in to execute weren't used to so you know, I was really drawn to that. It was, you know, incredible. After about 10 years, we had finished the um, initial development period. And, and most of the housing at that point had been, you know, uh, contracts had been executed for the privatization. And that's really when I got that opportunity eventually to make that shift into affordable. And the interesting thing was, is my time with the you know, public-private ventures was really a good transition because, um, you know, it utilized the bond financing. There were a lot of regulations in terms of tenant waterfalls and things that actually were very similar to Mm -hmm. how the LIHTC, you know, program works. So from that perspective, it provided me some similarity. And then also we went through the, you know, 2007, 2008 period. and, And I saw up to that point in... Um, my career, it had just been pumping out housing, you know, pumping out new housing, pumping out new housing. And then in that downturn, I was still in California at that time. And I remember driving the I-15 corridor and just seeing tracks and tracks of housing developments that were sitting there, you know, with millions of dollars of infrastructure in the ground and no movement. And that's when I was like, wow, you know, I really, I really want to rethink you know, my time in real estate. And right. and that's one of those things that I think drove helped drive me into more of the, you know, full affordable space. And when I first got into Litech in California, it wasn't just, you know, uh, affordable housing, you know, your typical kind of bond tax credit deals. I ended up doing, you know, several projects that focused on permanent supportive housing, which is, okay. you know, housing for, People transitioning out of homelessness, mm-hmm. um, you know, working with non nonprofit providers that were really mission driven um, in the services that they were providing for the residents, and you know that just really fueled me in a very different way than yeah. what I had been doing previously. So I that really helped me be up for the challenge and the undertaking that I knew I was going to have, you know, to learn, you know, to, to really learn somewhat of a new industry a little bit, or at least so it felt like, um, but it's absolutely been worth it.
0: Yeah. You had a bigger, a bigger reason behind it than just making, you know, housing, there was a more, more to it, right. The bigger, bigger, why to it? Like, did, did you growing up, did you have, um, any examples or were there like, did you have an interest in real estate and or in kind of helping society, you know, the greater good of society or was this, where did you learn these about real estate and, and affordable housing and just kind of having this desire to kind of help others as well?
1: So interestingly enough, I knew nothing about real estate growing up. I grew up in a small farm town that hadn't seen (laughs) any new development in decades. Um, and you know, my career path, I thought was going to be in engineering, uh, biomedical and nanotechnology, actually. Um, And so, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, my my degree and background is biomed, chemical engineering and business. And I didn't get exposed to real estate until after I had graduated. I had moved to London, actually, was working in London for a period of time just really to explore Europe. Uh, Mm. I came back and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do because I had spent four years as a process engineer and a microbiologist and it just didn't provide the fulfillment for me that I was really looking for. And then somebody at Trammell Crow had approached me Uh, the executive vice president approached me and said, hey, why don't you come talk to us about real estate? And I told him I wasn't interested. I knew (laughs) nothing about real estate. I'm really not interested. Um, And he convinced me to come to a gathering that that they were having. And I just was really drawn to the people, the caliber of people that they had within the organization, the conversations that I was having. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this could be something I could do for six months or so until I figure out what my next step is going to be. And that was back in 1995, I think, 94 95. And so it was really, um, history from there.
0: Did you have to learn anything like you, I mean, you had, you obviously were very technical, like detail orientated, you know, um, was there a skill set you had to learn to get into real estate? Like what, what was the hardest thing starting out?
1: Boy, you know, it was a a pretty easy transition for me. And I think partially because when I initially started in real estate, it was on the asset management and property management side. Mm -hmm. So from a business perspective, I had that business background, um, you know, sales, leasing, training, all of that seemed very natural for me. And it was great that I was able to start uh, you know, my career in that area as well as I transitioned into development because I had that, you know, grounding foundation of the operations yeah. and the management side. But I did realize within a couple years of that, you know, property management, asset management side that if I was going to stay in real estate, it it needed to be in development you know i the the technical portion you know of my brain where that engineering was at you know wasn't being kind of fulfilled mm-hmm. on that asset management side and that's where i found development just to be a beautiful fit with kind of my skill set because it did straddle you know both that you know sales and business side along with you know the engineering aspect and structuring and all of that so
0: a lot um, of people, I, I mean, I'm a recruiter, right? So I speak to a lot of property managers, a lot of asset managers, and a lot of them want to get into development. Like, and it's it's not easy to do. No. Uh, was there, did you do anything? Did you have to learn something? Did you go back to school or you just kind of like, wh- how did you make that transition?
1: Yeah, I got very lucky because especially back when I was trying to do it at that time, there really weren't real estate development programs. You couldn't go get a degree. You got into development because you were, you know, a real estate attorney, or you had some tangential career that gave you exposure. You didn't, you didn't start as a property manager and move your way into development. And you know, I got very lucky because, you know, I had great mentors at at Trammell Crow and really Clyde Holland of Holland Partners. You know, I, I told them, I said, if, you know, if I'm going to stay, I need to get into development and. He gave me my shot, essentially, to do that. And so, you know, and this is back in the 90s, I knew I had to step up and really prove myself very quickly if I was going to stay in it. And Mm -hmm. then you just got to knuckle down and figure it out. And fortunately, I've got a knack for financing. I had a knack for the engineering, although it was new, you know, the specifics to the financing and the engineering was new to me. I was able to pick it up pretty quickly. I think the hardest thing for me, you know, um, when I made that transition is just really understanding the nuts and bolts of the financing piece. Um, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, a deal or two, um, uh, you know, that kind of was quickly behind me as well.
0: And you, now you've been in the real estate industry for close to 30 years. Um, you're a woman, like, how is it that changed? Did you have mentors back then? Did you have, uh, Anyone helping you? And have you seen the industry change over the last 30 years in that regard?
1: It certainly changed a lot. I mean, at the time that I joined Trammell Crow on the development side, I was the only woman um, in that organization. I was 15 years junior to anybody else in the organization as well, which is why I really had to make an impact. Um, When I walked into a room, I needed to know what to say and be able to back it up. you know, my first couple organizations that, you know, that I was with, companies that I was with, um, yeah, things were very different in terms of um, expectations, just in terms of, you know, how you saw inter-company departments working together, Um, And also it is hard. It was hard. I mean, I never like to say I was at some kind of disadvantage because I was a woman. You know, I don't like to to say that. At the same time, the hardest thing has been, you know, having those long term networking relationships. Mm. Because, you know, as a woman, it's just more difficult to have those longer connections with what's predominantly a male, you know, you know, a, a male occupation and at least for me it was more difficult. So right. that has been the one challenge for me um you know it has you know been having those really you know strong network connections but um you know i think today what's most different is is we're hiring and recruiting most of the people that we're seeing you know they've got a real estate degree right they've mm-hmm. gone to college they at least have some exposure to what the industry looks like. Now, I would say most of them are still not in a position to really understand, uh, you know, true development until they get in and start doing it. But they're coming in with a lot more experience than, you know, I would have been able to or somebody in my position would have been able to, you know, back 25 years ago, trying to get into the business. So I think it's much easier today to get a you know, a career in real estate development straight out of college where it was practically unheard of to be able to do that unless Mm. you're, you had a, you know, a parent or a close family member that was able to get you in somewhere.
0: Do you find it more inclusive too? like, are there like, are there more like now you're, you can be a mentor and you're not a mentee, right? Like, do you have like women coming to you or is there organizations out there that kind of support that? There
1: certainly are lots of organizations for women in construction predominantly but re- women in the real estate business you certainly mm. still see more of them on the you know the brokerage side sales property management side um than you do specifically in development yeah. um, but there's you know several organizations that are certainly out there to support women and I think it's certainly you know, easier, I would say for a woman that wants to get into development to, you know, be considered for positions. Um,
0: yeah, no, I, I was in at ULI in San Diego and I met up with a friend of mine who was on this podcast actually, who's from, she's from Oregon. She's a developer there in Portland. And like, she, we were out at the, one of the parties and she like had this whole crew of like Portland women developers that all hung out together. Right. So, uh, it was kind of cool to see that and they're all supporting each other. And I just, I didn't know if that was just unique to Portland. I mean, it's a very inclusive environment, or like if that's something that occurred across the country with like developers out there. Um, I'm sure, like I don't see many women developers still. I mean, there's definitely more ju- more women in real estate at a junior level, working yeah. their way up, um, like investment roles, too, and some as- you know asset management and fundraising and all that stuff. I don't still don't see a ton of women developers out there.
1: No. I don't that's interesting I mean I grew up just outside of Portland so not surprising that you know Por- Portland would find a way to band together
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, ha- I haven't
1: seen that in other markets so that's
0: great. um so what's what's going on to you McDowell you you're helping them get into other states too you're in Florida Texas and I mean I've recently like I said I know McDowell for a while and I've only yeah recently seen them getting into the affordable world and obviously hiring you bringing you over was a big big move on their part Um, like what other states are you looking at? Are you do you have target markets?
1: Yeah, we're exploring different states right now. It's really about, you know, there's a dynamic shift in in funding availability and bond availability. So I would call us still in the um exploration phase, you know, predominantly it'll be east of Texas, Mm -hmm. you know, possibly, you know, Georgia and North Carolina. Um, but we, we yeah. not sure where that next state is going to be, but we have several that we're exploring right now.
0: Awesome. Well, are you ready for, I mean, it must be very hot in Florida, right? Are it's you ready been in to the eighties. Okay. Well, it's not hot enough. Are you ready to be on the hot seat?
1: Absolutely. Bring it on. Oh!
0: The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides, you know, everything you need from an HR perspective for your for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. All right. Question number one. Do you have any podcast recommendations?
1: Uh, The Gold Digger. Um, That is my, not the Gold Digger. That is the (laughs) the Gold Digger, uh, Jenna Kircher. That is my favorite one right now.
0: Okay. I don't know that one, but I I can check it out. Is it like, it's about setting goals and achieving them?
1: She's really focused on um, really optimizing your life. I mean, of mm. course, goal setting, it's not just really about goal setting, but it's really about personal growth in all, you know, facets and, you know, figuring out how to be, um, you know, in alignment, you know, how, how to be in alignment with, with your desires to really find fulfillment in life. And I think fulfillment is one of those things that Collectively, we've forgotten as a society, people have been so focused for decades on success, right. I think, even, even people that aren't, aren't clear what success means to themselves, but they have some fuzzy idea in their head, and then when they attain some level of what they think success is, find out that, wow, that wasn't what I expected, and I think we've forgotten the art of fulfillment, and right. what does fulfillment mean for us? And having a meaning behind how we spend our days, not just making money, doing something. Um, and I so I think that. that's that's really what her you know podcast is centered
0: around. I love it. Cool. Good answer. I haven't heard that one. I will check it out. Um, do you have do you have any mentors from you know your career that you'd like to give a shout out to, or anyone that's really really influenced you?
1: You know, um, still to this day, Clyde Holland, I mean, I really started my career with Trammell Crow. I'm just so blessed to have started there. Jennifer Moriarty at the time when I started, you know, and Clyde Holland, they really set the tone for me Mm. um, for real estate um, and really enforced in me just a high level of, um, you know, not just expectation, but, um, you know. Uh, production or output, so to speak. So they really started my career. I'm will be forever, you know, grateful for them. Um, and uh, Sherry Hoffman with um, Chelsea Investment Corporation, where I got my affordable start. Mm. Um, an incredible woman. She's president of Chelsea. Um, brilliant, brilliant financial mind. And that was the one thing I really needed to pick up fast was the nuances to underwriting in in the affordable space so yeah i'll certainly forever be grateful for her for um you know her sharing her wisdom and experience and just watching her in action which really allowed me to pick things up very quickly
0: what do you look for in when you're hiring someone like what kind of skill set like what sort of energy and like i mean obviously there's like a job description of check 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 but like what beyond that what are you looking for when you hire someone
1: You know, to me, it's really about finding the person with the right attitude. You know, I think the skills and what we do can be trained, but finding somebody that, you know, really has the right attitude, the right motivation, um, that's going to be a good cultural fit to the team is at the top of my list. You know, second to that, I think it's just really important that, um, you know, somebody's able to be... um, Oh boy, I just I, I just lost the word that I was trying to say. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, that they're um, humble. No, it's um, that you know the, they're able to um, you know research on their own. That they have that you know I'm drive sorry. to you know, really go out and just figure things out, right? You, you have to be kind of industrious in that way, because especially in this environment, especially in affordable housing, things are changing all the time. What you thought mm-hmm. you knew last week is different this week. The regs that were last year are different this year. You know, you're structuring different. Your financing is going to be different. You've got a new challenge every day, even more so than in market rate so you never reach that point where it's like oh i've got it all down and all i got to do is r- rinse and repeat um you've got to constantly be somebody that's that's wanting to learn willing to learn um is curious enough to like dive deep and figure it out um so that's mm. really i think you know the top the top of my list for what i look at when when i'm looking to hire
0: awesome and you mentioned earlier regarding your, you know, how you transitioned into more, uh, you know, double bottom line type of real estate, right. Where it was financial bottom line. And also you had the impact on society. Like, yeah, the name of this podcast is impact real estate. Um, how do you feel your, your real estate has an impact on the world?
1: You know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's creating better environments for living for people. And whether that's through the physical asset, you know, for me personally, I love the, you know, the, the visioning and the creation and, and, you know, when you're designing a a property and a a project really thinking through how is this going to feel to live in, you know, how am I going to experience it? How can I relate to my neighbors? How is it going to be to walk down the street, you know, to get on the bus or go to a grocery store Mm -hmm. and in really being put that thought into, you know, those aspects of the real estate. Um, And hopefully that means it's going to be a better living environment for people. For me, my living environment is one of the top important things in my life. Not that I need to have a big fancy house or anything, but it's my surrounding. Where am I at? What am I looking at? How does, how does it feel when I'm in it? So I'm very sensitive to providing, you know, thoughtfulness behind that to the, to what I'm providing the end users. Um, At the same time with the mission right now, being able to, again, provide a better environment for people that don't have a lot of options, whether that's affordable housing, which is hard to come by in, you know, many major metropolitans across the US, or if it's providing permanent supportive housing or housing for our seniors, you know, that are on fixed incomes. You know, it's reaching out to those segments of the population that are underserved or not as well served and being able to provide something that hopefully puts a smile on their face and, and helps them feel satisfied, you know, in their life.
0: Great answer, Jody. Thank you. Well, Jody Rothery, it was great getting to know you. I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, you got a great story, You're doing some great work out there and best of luck to, uh, to you for the rest of your career.
1: I certainly appreciate it. It's been great, great talking to you.